Hello and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio with your host, James Rabban. Tonight, we're going to discuss sustainable minds shaping tomorrow's change makers with my guest, Emily Calvert. Hello and welcome to The Late Show with your host, James Radburn. It's Friday, it's November, and it is dark outside. But tonight, we're going to discuss sustainable minds shaping tomorrow's changemakers. Now, we've got a whole host of topics we're going to discuss. By understanding what is sustainability, do we even have a moral obligation to teach it within schools? What are some of those practical tips in integrating it within the curriculum or assemblies? And what is that fine balance between preaching, but also engaging students in that activism so we can empower them to be change makers? What does the government say? What policies do we need to do? Do we need to have solar panels on every school? And how do we overcome some of these challenges in integrating it? Now, a lot of what we're going to discuss during this episode and with my with Emily Calvert is going to be about the UN Sustainable Goals. Now, these are a set of 17 global objectives that aim to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all people in the planet by 2030. They cover various aspects of social, economic and environmental development, such as poverty, hunger, health, education, gender equality, clean energy, climate change, biodiversity, peace and justice. The goals were adopted by all UN member states in 2015 as part of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. They're based on previous initiatives such as the Millennium Development Goals and the Rio Plus 20 Summit. And those goals are interconnected and require the collaboration of governments, civil society, private sector and individuals to achieve them. But what does this look like for education? And tonight, that's what we're going to discuss. Welcome and thank you for joining me tonight, uh, Emily, on Teachers Talk Radio. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm I'm looking forward to talking to you. Now, I'm very excited. And the main reason why I'm excited is this is the first podcast interview I'm doing in person. Um, and it's always something special about talking to someone in person. But this time we have a microphone in front of us. So hopefully we won't go off tangent too much. We've got quite a lot to discuss this evening. And it's a topic that I know is really at the heart of you, Emily, in what you've done and what you've said and the work I've seen you do over the last few years. And I have a title, Sustaining Minds, Shaping Tomorrow's Change Makers. And I think it's going to be a topic that we will unravel. We'll touch on a lot. There may be things that are controversial in there. There may be things actually, why does this matter? But I know for you, this is almost your biggest key driver. And before we get into that, and before we delve into it, for our listeners, can you go into your journey 
how have you got into education? Because I know our listeners will be really excited about that journey. And I'm always fascinated about what you've done. And I always unearth something new every time I talk to you. Yeah, I came to education, I think, relatively late, as opposed to um, a lot of the routes, which is wanting to be a teacher, going to university. I, in fact, when I first went to university, I studied drama and technical theatre um, because I was just, I loved theatre and I was passionate and driven by it. And and I knew that what I wanted to do was to, to entertain and to make change and to enable people to um, enjoy and experience things that are different. Theatre for me growing up was um, a way to express yourself, but to experience the world in lots of different ways. So um, I got my degree in theatre and I went and I was really lucky enough to go and work immediately in London um, off West End and work in loads of different productions. I then sort of segued into touring. I worked in Europe and I eventually was lucky enough to go and work in America in theatre. And I realised after about six or seven years that more and more I was working with young people and enabling them to be the best they could be and to follow their passion and their drive in life. So uh, I worked about 10 years, a lot of that with children, especially in deprived areas I worked in East London. I worked in Barking and Dagenham. We took a show into the Millennium Dome in the year 2000. And uh, in 2005, I had my son and I was enough to have three children and there only, there's only four or five years between the three of them. And I was told when I was in theatre initially that it would be really hard to have a family and also to work professionally. And that was absolutely right, because that was the point I realised that I couldn't go back to touring. And when my son was about three years old, I was approached by his preschool to come and do some work with acting and drama with the children in the preschool. So I went and worked there and we put on tiny plays with sort of three and four year olds. And I loved it. And I eventually, after a few months, went and, and worked part-time at the preschool and I worked there for a few years. I then, as he moved up to primary school, I went with him and I volunteered and then I worked as a, a TA in reception in an early years. And after a few years of that, I thought, do you know what? I reckon I could do this. I reckon I could be a teacher. This is half about theatre, half about passion and drive. And, and I'm really passionate about everything I do. So I, at 36, went to do my teacher training and um, I worked, I was lucky to get a job straight out of my teacher training. And I went to work in year four in a primary school. I worked in year four and then in upper key stage two in year five and six, and then was lucky enough to get an assistant heads role. And then I moved on to open my own school and was a head, head of school and then ultimately a head teacher. And I've been a head teacher until earlier this year when, and, and that's, you know, an incredible thing to be able to open your own school and to set the culture from scratch, the expectation of how you want things to be which is how I fell largely into promoting and thinking about sustainability. I've known when I was a teacher that I really tried to drive the children's learning through purpose. And we'd done um, really exploratory work about deforestation and giving the children, um, you know, if you're going to write persuasive writing, give the children something that they're passionately going to try and persuade someone about. So um, when we did that, I thought this is how I want a whole school to be. The children need to have purpose behind what they're doing. So being in a position to set up a school from scratch, that was how I drove the curriculum we wrote behind that. And then I was a head teacher until earlier this year. And uh, in August of 2023, I have now set up my own curriculum consultancy, specifically focusing on the environment and sustainability. 
Excellent. That's such a varied career you've gone on, especially with children and the experience you've had as well. Not many people, not many experienced heads would have that opportunity to open a school house. I bet that was fascinating, scary, but also exciting in the same regard. And you've almost interlinked a little bit of your purpose throughout that. And I think your Bring out in a second when I ask the next question, when we go on our first theme about your purpose. And you've said it was finding a purpose for children and what that is. So let's dive into this term about sustainability. And there are buzz terms that we come through, lots in education. And we were talking earlier about AI at the moment, and there's a summit going on in the UK. But also there's this whole element both politically and both socioeconomically and all over about sustainability and if you haven't seen it the sustainable development goals and the united nations have these amazing resources and amazing thoughts and we're going to dive into those but for you to start this off with our listeners how would you define what sustainability is especially in the context of education because when we talk about sustainability, a lot of people think, oh, everyone's going to have electric cars. Well, there's 1.6 billion cars in the world at the moment. And actually, why is sustainability going to be important? But actually, let's define it. What is sustainability, especially in this education um, sector that we're talking about tonight? I think when we think about sustainability, people immediately think about climate action. And I think that's a massive driver within sustainability and it should in no way be disregarded. It is really huge. And, and I hope we'll get to talk about that a little bit later on. But I think alongside that, I think we're thinking about the sustainability of our planet in terms of resources we have, in terms of people, in terms of equality. And if if you look to the United Nations Sustainable Goals, this for me was when everything kind of the stars aligned, if you like. And I went, okay, here is a really clear document, a really clear goal, a set of plans that everybody, you know, 193 member states of the United Nations signed to agree to try and achieve these. And it's not just about sort of life on earth or looking after biodiversity and, and life on land, much broader range of that, of thinking about of quality education, of equal rights for women around the world, ending poverty, making sure that everybody has effective health care and, and they have the chance for prosperity. So when we say sustainability, I think it's key to purely think about I don't know, planting trees, although planting trees is massively important. It's about a much broader range than that. So the United Nations Sustainable Goals have these 17 goals. They're all interconnected. And the whole point of it is that one can lead to another. So when you think about no poverty, no poverty, that's actually a separate goal to zero hunger. So poverty isn't just about feeding people. It's about a wider understanding of what it means to be impoverished. And then zero hunger leads on to good health and well-being. And the goals lead to each other and are a web of different ideas. Below the 17 goals, there's then 169 targets. And these, if you read them, you know, they're they're very wordy, they're in very much adult speak. So when we think about how they apply to education, actually we have to think about simplifying them for for some ages within that. But there's still things that we can we can set a culture and an, an understanding within schools 
as to how we can achieve those when we think about things like health and well-being, what it means to be um, responsible consumers, to build societies that, that benefit um, everybody rather than individuals, rather than monetary gain. It's the benefit of mankind. So when I think about sustainability, think of it as a broad term here rather than just that sort of narrow slice of what, what people generally think. Um, so when you go back to the, the UN Sustainable Goals, it's about a world transformation. And it is really important. I think this whole element that the UN, and as you said, so many countries have signed up to these. And if you start looking at tools such as Microsoft, and I know that other companies out there at the moment, they're starting to integrate these sustainable development goals, or we may refer to them as SDGs at points throughout this. Another acronym for us in education, we love acronyms. But it's <laughs> one of those that is really, really important. And you'll see companies that are coming out. But COVID and that progress that we're doing is in peril. And I know they come out with a report every year and they're just saying, actually, half we're halfway through when they started to 2030 and progress on more than 50% of those SDG targets is weak and in some ways insufficient. And on 30% of those, it's either stalled or regressed. Are these, are people putting enough weight on these goals to make a difference in our world at the moment? I don't think they are. Um, what's really interesting about the SDGs is that they are um, time bound, that we they've given us, or they've given us, we've given us, the idea is that they're achieved by 2030. Um, and you're right, COVID has set us back massively on that progression. Um, but they're also data driven, which is an interesting, so we can then have a look and see how different countries are progressing. There's a great website called the Sustainable Development Report, where you can break down each of the sustainable development goals and look at which countries worldwide are achieving them, which one still needs more work to do. And I, and I went on and had a look today. So firstly, I was, I was interested to see the United Kingdom, which is where we are now, is number 11th out of 193 countries worldwide for being able to achieve those goals. And we're currently sitting just under 82% achieved. But what was a surprise was the three areas that we still had major work that needed to be done was in our climate action, um, in our responsible consumption, which isn't a huge surprise to me personally, but this one was zero hunger, that in this country we are not achieving our goals towards zero hunger. And that actually, and we'll talk about this, within schools, if you've got children in your demographic or families in your demographic that fall within that category, it would be very hard for your priorities to be on a global scale when actually there's a more immediate problem there that needs to be sorted. And that leads really nicely into this idea. Now, over the last few years, there's always been a focus on disadvantaged children, and there really should be. But the problem is those gaps are widening, and not only with zero hunger, but also access to technology. Yeah. There's a whole range of digital poverty that's coming in there. And the concern is actually what we are doing nationally, but also within our schools, is it enough? And the amount of times I go and talk to a head teacher or someone else would come out of a meeting saying, well, I've got to go and sort out a family who's become homeless today. So then why should we be teaching 
about sustainability then? If that if we still got issues about these disadvantaged peoples, we've still got massive issues about hunger and clothing and making sure they get the care that they should need. Do we actually have a moral obligation to teach sustainability as well? Is it a wishy-washy thing that say, oh, in this world, this is what we should do, or have we gone too far down the rabbit hole now um, in that regard as well, in that bit? We do have a moral obligation, absolutely, to think about all of it. I don't know any teacher, any passionate, dedicated teacher who didn't get into this game to not try and solve all the problems for everybody all the time on all levels. You know, I've, I've been a head teacher and I understand what it's like to have some of those difficulties, but we have to think on a huge scale and we also have to think on that minutiae scale as well. And we will all tap dance hard to, to mm. make sure that all of these things are covered. And it is our moral obligation. It's our moral obligation to teach without fear, isn't it? To who else is going to bring these to the forefront if we don't do it now with the children and, and make it a part of their culture and understanding that we need to protect the world. We need to seek equality and justice and they can make those differences. Then who else is going to do it? The time is right now. Just Finance Foundation proudly sponsors Teachers Talk Radio for Talk Money Week. Join us from Saturday the 4th of November for a week of incredible guests and thought-provoking discussions on how teachers can talk about money in the classroom. Tune in, be inspired and empower the future generation. Teachers Talk Radio, sponsored by Just Finance Foundation, helping children manage money wisely. Visit our website for the schedule and details, justfinancefoundation.org.uk. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. Uh, it's these UN Sustainable Goals, um, and they did this in the latest report and emphasised that students and youths globally are demanding comprehensive and quality climate education. And you can just see, and we'll probably get onto this later, about the activism and actually what people are doing out there in the world. And people, and I think, are very much conscious 
about what they're eating, what they're doing and why they're doing it as well in some regard, more than we ever have been as a country or as a nation globally. But what the SDGs say is that 94% of countries report that climate change education is included in the curricula when actually they analysed it and revealed that only about half or just less than half do not mention climate change in the national curriculum. And I think that's a really interesting element. Our curriculum, especially in primary, is is packed. It is. And for as much as we say about Ofsted, their focus on the curriculum has made us think about the why. And over the last few weeks and months, I've been really reading up about Simon Sinek, and he has a fantastic going back to the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? And I think that comes back to anything, whether it's technology, whether it's to do with the curriculum we teach our children, to whether it's supporting those children. And yes, we can do those little bits and we'll support those children who are in our need in schools. But that's only small little bits. And sometimes we need to look at the bigger picture of why is this happening in the first place? Why do we have children who do not have access to food? Or why do we do this? And I think from my personal point of view, sustainability is being used too much as a political tool. Mm. And if they are saying breakfast within schools, they think that's going to fix zero hunger, actually. Is it? Is that? They're just doing it politically. Really, what else can we do that is going to make a benefit to these children? Um, so what are your thoughts about the political side of this as well? Because in education, we do as what we're told a little bit. But um, I just think we have got this moral obligation so where does it fit in within the curriculum? So I think there's um, there's several ways we can think about this within schools. The first one is what we directly teach the children, what we're teaching them in lessons and how we can um, design our curriculum to be progressive, but to cover those areas that are really crucial to develop their understanding. And there are some um, curriculum subjects where it fits really beautifully, aren't there? We know it naturally fits within things like science, geography, within citizenship, within our sort of British values, uh, within PSHE. It can really naturally fit into those subjects. You know, if we're going to learn about rivers, why not learn about rivers, but also learn about flooding, about the causes of flooding. And just as a side note, really quickly here, I just want to talk about the fact that we don't want any culture of eco-fear with children. This is not about fear-mongering and scaremongering. This is about giving children hope and understanding. And this is about developing um, socially aware citizens of the future, that we have a moral obligation to make sure that future generations are not in the same situation we're in now, which is a pretty dire, sinister one. Um, so it fits naturally within those subjects. There's also subjects, and we've spoken about this before between us, where if you make it a purpose, a purpose-led topic, so my specialist subject really is art and DT. I'm a massive fan of DT. I, I can't understand why it's not um, right up there with English and maths. This is, this is how you develop critical thinking about problem solving. You give children the tools and the understanding and the knowledge they need, and then they apply that into a project. So why not make those projects based around solving real, real world problems? And I know that your big subject is computing. So similarly with that, why not look at a computing curriculum that can be underpinned with problem solving and teach those skills that children really need 
in order to think differently in the future, but can also develop their understanding progressively through the curriculum as well. And it's really empowering that. Um, but then there's other ways you can integrate it into school life. We can think about um, how we communicate with our stakeholders, with parents, with the community. And we'll, we'll talk about some different ideas for that in a minute, but also things like assemblies, um, how you cover areas and you give the children a greater understanding. But also I'm a huge advocate of outdoor learning, about creating, if you teach children about gardening, about farming, about environmental awareness and biodiversity, about food chains, but do it in a practical outdoor fashion, then they're going to naturally develop more of an empathy and an understanding for the natural world around them. Um, and you can root that within projects. Um, and, and also things like connecting classrooms, working with children in different classrooms and teachers around the world to develop an understanding of what pressures they face. You know, imagine the power of if you're doing a gardening project to grow vegetables to make, I don't know, a a soup or a salad to sell at the summer fair. And then you're doing that alongside a group of children who are doing it in South America and alongside a group of children who are doing that in Canada and alongside another group of children that are doing that in, in India. And then think about how those connections really develop an understanding of being a global citizen, of understanding challenges that are faced with countries that are flooded and countries that are in drought and and that's a really powerful tool. And that's actually a fairly easy thing that we can set up. That's just about talking and making those communicative links. So tell me a few about those DT projects you've run um, and planned and how you've interweaved sustainability within that. Because we do have curriculum areas such as who, which the primary curriculum is very, like, this is what it looks like. Whereas, as you were saying, like computing, and if you take the strand of IT, Yes, you've got to manipulate text or images, but the context and the content that you do it around can be tweaked. And it's the same for particularly some parts of art and DT in particular. You can tweak these things around topics. And often we see schools doing it around history and geography, and there's no reason why that's a bad way of doing it. But tell the listeners how you've done it around DT and how you've incorporated maybe these other bits that um, wider outside community as well. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one is in year one, my decision when, and I'm now on about my third um, carnation of writing the curriculum and thinking about the sustainability and how it, and how it all ties together. So in year one, uh, it's quite normal, traditional that the children might learn about sliders and levers. So thinking about um, how, these mechanisms, really simple mechanisms, you're first introducing children to how they work. And traditionally, you sort of explore sliders and levers, and then children might make a pop-up Christmas card at the end of that. Well, personally for me, that's great because they're understanding the mechanisms. You know, it's progressive because we're going to build on that in the following years with levers and linkages. But that in itself is a fairly pointless end product that we're aiming towards. So in the first section I've written for year one, we look at sliders and levers, and then we think about how we can use that to convey to younger children in early years about how to conserve energy. So um, we don't labour the point. We look at how might you conserve energy around the home. So it might be turning off taps. It might be turning off light switches. It might be cycling to school. And then the children create a book between the class with they maybe a page each or a page between two. 
and they use their knowledge of sliders and levers to show that visually that they can then share with reception class on how to save energy. And it's just the application of that skill is slightly different. So there's an element of research, then they learn about how to use sliders and levers, and then they apply that into something that can then be shared with younger children. Um, another one was in year three, when we look at hydraulics and pneumatics. Um, I wanted to pinpoint that and I wanted to think about designers within DT. So we look at a designer called Boyenslat. He is um, a Scandinavian guy who had created a boat that can collect plastics out the ocean. And so we sort of look at him, learn about him. He was very young when he first designed that, which kind of then is empowering children to say, you can make a difference. If you have this skill, these knowledge, you can then apply those and make a difference as well. And we look at him and then their task at the end of once they understand the hydraulics and pneumatics is to create a, a mechanism that can help him to collect plastics and then to deliver them to, say, a recycling centre or wherever they're going to go. But they then need to use their knowledge of hydraulics and pneumatics to add on to the work and the design that he's already done. I like this idea that I've been writing notes and whenever I do these podcasts, I write copious notes and you've written this add on. And I think that's a nice thing about us as humans, almost. We should be adding and tweaking and evolving from what magnificent things people have already done. And a lot of these inventions, you're talking about the plastic action then, are children who are young, who have actually got a passion in this, who've somehow heard a story or thought of something, can really take in it and think, actually, yeah, this is not right. Let's do something about this. So what are the, so there's some really concise and clear curriculum areas, but let's think about then idea about recycling or waste reduction or things that people could pick up quite quickly and start implementing this next term within schools as well. So what are some of those almost horrible phrase, quick wins or things that actually you could do without adding too much onus onto the curriculum and re elements at the moment well this is really edit senior leaders in schools isn't it there is a whole other agenda here that we need to think about which is how can we make schools themselves be more sustainable um thinking about waste reduction you know this is one we we kind of in school of almost laughed about and it's it's not in any way funny about the fact that we have recycling bins in classrooms but are those recycling bins being emptied actually into the general waste and landfill bin at the end of the day or are they being collected? Are they actually being recycled? Um, I know at my school, I uh, banned all laminating and I banned all glitter, which incidentally, I was very excited to see is now being banned on a much larger scale. But uh, we did that a few years ago. I can tell you, nobody is popular in early years when you ban glitter, <laughs> but I told them they could use rice and dust instead. So <laughs> they were thrilled. Um, but there are certainly wins as a school. And I, do you know what? I think these are absolutely crucial when you're thinking about education because children need to know that they're already making a difference that the the way to move away from that eco fear is to give them hope that currently as a school we are a team and we can work together and we're making a difference i think a great big thought there i mean there's things around solar energy and about clean energy and switching off your blackboards i think there's a huge thought and drive to be had around school food about thinking about where school food comes from, about the miles it travels, about how much waste there is and about what we do with that school food waste. Um, I know I, uh, before I left, looking into changing maybe one or two of our school days into meat-free days, which 
was actually would be a huge step forward. We know that as humans, we don't all need to give up meat. We need to responsibly consume. We need to all ideally drop our meat consumption by around about 20%, which is achievable in a school setting. And so pass that responsibility, or don't pass it, but but make sure that's happening. Give that, that's almost a gift, isn't it, to your school that's not particularly complicated to, to put in. Assuming you've then got all, all people are in agreement and and that's fine. And then and then you're empowering the children by saying, Do you know, already we've achieved this. Uh, we previously at school, uh, we'd set up a bike bus. So we try to limit transportation to and from school. I, there's litter picks in the local community. There's working. When we talk about the sustainability, we're not just talking on a on a global scale. It's, it's easy to sort of point a finger and go, we need to plant more trees. Deforestation is is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing. But so is things that are happening in our neighborhood, things that are happening in our playground. And maybe that's how we introduce this to parents and to the community is by saying, here it is on a school scale, here it is on a community scale, then in the United Kingdom and then on a worldwide scale. And we give, we empower children to make a difference on all those levels. I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate. Oh, good. Um, yeah. And this sounds all fascinating. It sounds great. And a lot of it is often trying to persuade people, isn't it? And it's not saying, right, do as I like say yeah. in this regard. So let's say we're doing all of this in schools. What's different is it going to make when you've got massive countries that don't change their ways, that are absolutely hurtling out harmful gases, who are not changing their culture. What's the point of doing this for our children? I read about six months ago an article around the fact that everybody needed to move through their own industrial revolution and that we obviously had our industrial re revolution <laughs> a long time ago but there are countries in the world that that need to that have a right to to the technology to the infrastructure that we have in place now i think i think it's our duty to do what we can to start thinking on a larger scale than we currently are we can think about we can think about our country and we can say you know we're great we're doing 11th worldwide you know after finland denmark sweden we're doing we're doing brilliantly in what we're achieving but you've got a really good point there that it's not equal across the world. Some countries are not able to do this. They're not at the point where, and, and this takes money, doesn't it? Mm. All of this takes money in order to make those ethical choices. Unfortunately, there is sometimes a financial obligation there as well. I think we have no choice but to try and make a difference. That's what I think. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I, I was trying to see how I would answer that same question um, while you were talking there. You know, as a teacher, you should never pose a question. <laughs> you should also never pose a question when you're looking for just one answer, should you? No, no. <laughs> but this is why conversations around this are so enlightening. And I think that's why you've got to look at both sides of it. But I think if you stand on principles, whatever decisions our children make, they are based on good, strong foundations. And I know that's how I bring my children up and that's no I, how I teach as well. And actually, if you put the right foundations, right principles in those children and actually 
act it as well and show it and be part of that culture of sustainability or making sure we look after the world that we live in. I think that's really important. And we've gotten beyond the state in the last, I think it's only been the last few years where the science is so strong behind it that people can't like, it's like the flat earth kind of kind of idea that people can't deny it anymore and so we've got to do something and we've got to that stage that we have to do something if you think a few years ago would we have thought the world would have come to a standstill because of an outbreak no we wouldn't have thought actually everyone across the country across the world would have stopped it happened you think about storms you think about the climate I know schools um, in Devon this week who are closing because of the storm coming in. And you think the world that we live in, we've got to look after it. Do you know what, James? It's the young people that want to make this difference. Mm -hmm. I've got three teenagers and they are the ones that empower me to try and make this difference. You know, they're not in a position yet to do it themselves but they are in a position to tell me what's important to them. And they care. Young people care more than our generation do, James. And I don't think we are solely responsible. I think we've, you know, there's, is it something like 11 companies that basically run the world? It might be, it might be slightly more than that. I might be exaggerating, but we need to hold these companies to account. We're all slightly pawns in a much greater game than, than we'd ideally like to be, I think. But when I speak to my own children, they, they tell me what they care about. You know, my children very willingly all turned vegetarian. When I, when I looked into it and I knew that meat consumption, responsible consumption was a really important thing. I sat down with them and said, do you know what, we need to talk about this. And within half an hour, my three children went, do you know what then, if that's going to make a difference, if we can make a difference on any scale, then that's what we're prepared to do. And, and I'm absolutely inspired by my own children and the children at school. In fact, the more I talk to, and I am, I don't preach about sustainability, but I'm really passionate about trying to make a difference. And if we can all make the smallest difference, a small percentage of difference, then that has to have a ripple effect out. And I'm telling it's not the children that I find it harder to convince. It's generally the adults. You know, we have a limited time here and, and you and I both know we're not going to see the end of this. We're barely going to scratch the surface of the start, but we have to do whatever we can to set the ball in motion in the right direction. And, and this is our opportunity right now. As the curriculum changed in 2014, we know now that people are really beginning to write and implement things. We know that there's the climate action document from the government that then needs to be put in place in the next few years. I think this is going to be a real driver, like the personal development has been in the last few years. And now is the time. Now, if we make this in our culture, we make it the absolute stable norm for our children to understand their environment, to understand how they sit globally, to understand the plights of different people worldwide, to know that they have a voice, they have the ability to make a difference. And why don't we teach them how to do that? Let's teach them how to, how do governments work? How do, um, how do, how do you write a petition? How do you make an actual change? 
Just Finance Foundation proudly sponsors Teachers Talk Radio for Talk Money Week. Join us from Saturday the 4th of November for a week of incredible guests and thought-provoking discussions on how teachers can talk about money in the classroom. Tune in, be inspired and empower the future generation. Teachers Talk Radio, sponsored by Just Finance Foundation, helping children manage money wisely. Visit our website for the schedule and details, justfinancefoundation.org.uk. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles. Advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A record number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds have applied for the most selective UK university degrees, says a report on the BBC News website. The report is based on data released by the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service, known as UCAS. The students have applied to Oxford and Cambridge and for degrees in medicine, dentistry and veterinary science. UCAS Interim Chief Executive Sander Crystal described the applications, which have an October deadline, as encouraging. The Sutton Trust charity, however, said that the advantage gap had hardly shifted. The data is based on a participation of local areas measure which splits students into five groups based on how many people aged 18 and 19 in their area go on to higher education. Those from areas where the fewest numbers of young people go to university are classed as the most disadvantaged. Applications for this group are up by 7% since last year, in contrast to the most advantaged areas, which is up by only 2%. However, The total number of applicants from the most advantaged areas is over 17,000, compared to a little over 3,000 from the most disadvantaged areas. Other key findings from October applications include a 6% increase in the number of UK applicants receiving free school meals, although the overall numbers of those receiving free meals is on the rise. A drop of 7% a year in 18-year-olds applying to medicine degrees 
and a slight drop in total numbers of international applicants. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan was in the news again this week as she told English schools that parents have a right to view the sex education materials which are being taught in schools. The announcement comes as the government is due to launch a public consultation into relationships, sex and health education. Guidance has been in place since the subject became compulsory in primary and secondary schools in September 2020. But Miss Keegan said she wanted to debunk the myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Jeff Barton of Askell said he agreed with transparency on RSHE materials and that this is key, but that sending the letter when some schools were on half term was slightly odd. The BBC also reports ETA, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has been accused of misleading the public about the risks of social media and of contributing to a mental health crisis amongst youth. The claims were made in a federal lawsuit in the United States, but many in other countries will be following with interest. The lawsuit accuses the company of ensnaring users whilst concealing the substantial dangers of its platforms. It also said that the company had collected data on children under the age of 13 and that this breached the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Meta is contesting the lawsuit and will likely present research it says shows that teens say social media actually helps them when they are struggling. It's not the first time social media companies have faced lawsuits, but it is the first time so many attorneys general, 33 in total, have signed such a suit. In addition to those already filed by families, young people and school districts. Those working with children and young people in the UK will undoubtedly be interested in the progress of the lawsuit. Dyslexia Scotland has announced on its website that former Strictly Come Dancing winner and Dyslexia Scotland ambassador Hamza Yassin will talk to an audience as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week Scotland. Yassin, who is dyslexic, became an ambassador for the charity earlier this year. He says he is passionate about sharing his story during events held in the first week in November. In a week where The Guardian reports that more than one million UK children experienced destitution last year, meaning their families could not adequately feed, clothe, clean or keep them warm, the BBC covered a story of a primary school in Peckham where most children are homeless. The school has nearly 300 pupils, all of whom receive free uniform, trips and meals. The school conducted a survey in which most families described themselves as living in non-secure tenancies. This can mean sofa surfing with friends, living in B&B accommodation or living in hostels. Parents of children at the school spoke positively about the support they received from the school, but also focused on the toll the uncertainty took on them and their children. Meanwhile, The Guardian tells of concerns expressed by poverty campaigners, teachers and welfare workers about the damaging effects of destitution including physical ill health, mental illness, school absence and poor behaviour. Both articles can be found online and give more details on the latest findings. Finally, Schools Week reports that as many as one in 10 school workers had to wait over 60 days for DBS checks last year. A Freedom of Information request showed that 2.5% of those submitted took more than 60 days to complete, more than triple the rate in 2021 to 22. Jeff Barton of Askell says it all adds to the pressure that school leaders and teachers face recruitment 
and reflects the widespread underinvestment in public services. A spokesperson for the DBS said neither Ofsted nor the DfE have raised any concerns about delays. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. So let's go into the next part I want to discuss. And I think it comes back to balance. So how can we balance this between not preaching about it, but empowering our pupils? Because when you when we talk about when I talk to teachers and I talk to them like, why are we sticking paper on paper? <laughs> Don't <laughs> And sometimes, and it comes back to the why, you just step back a little bit. We're all teachers. We're in the midst of a lot of pressures. We're balancing a lot of plates. And actually, sustainability, what's the quickest thing to do? Okay, I'll reprint this. If I printed it and it was the wrong orientation and it's all completely wrong, I will print it again. Maybe on a set of 30 new sheets and not actually reuse those 30. And I'll put those 30 in my scrap paper drawer. Now, we've probably all been guilty of something like that. But actually, the impact of that waste or that usage is, is difficult. And so how can we then, and going back to workload and everything else, but this, how can we balance this thing between we're not preaching to the children, we should be doing this, mm -hmm. but how can we empower them? How can we make sure there's quality? How can we make sure there's hope so they are not scared, so they are socially aware, they are informed, and that they can actually drive this as well going down the line? I was just thinking as you said that the scrap paper drawer is like the, the guilt-free method of storing paper until the end of the year. So you just store up that guilt all year and then in one five-minute thing, just pop it in the recycling and then forget about it as quickly as you can. <laughs> and we've all been there as teachers, you yeah. know, when you've printed it completely wrong. Right, I think this is about understanding what is important. What is important is teaching critical thinking, is teaching creativity, is to to have a culture and an ethos within your classroom of open and safe discussions, being able to develop children's opinions, being able to talk about things and, and allow them to explore ideas, to create independent thinkers within classrooms. I understand that this is very difficult along the confines of what is already a really jam-packed curriculum, you know, with such a huge emphasis on um, on the core subjects. And we know that there's a huge emphasis there because that is ultimately what people are tested on and then it's data-driven, isn't it? But we can do it through that. So I briefly touched on it earlier. When you're thinking about something like teaching children about persuasive writing, if you root it in something that they are passionate about, then that will naturally, hopefully come to the forefront. And then it makes more sense, doesn't it? It makes more sense to root the purpose of your learning in an area that children can then be persuasive about, for example. Um, I think we need to think about student-led initiatives, allow the children to decide on areas where they want to make a difference, where they want to lead projects. I've always thought this, that when you're teaching something, let's say you're teaching, I don't know, parenthesis, um, you, can, you, can, you can put that idea into any format, into any, into any context, and we tend to do it 
always, which is, I'm not saying it's wrong. We do it through like a, a high quality text, don't we? In English, we're teaching parentheses. We look at our high quality text and then we apply it. We apply our skills and then we rewrite elements or, and that's how it fits in. But, but actually that can be done through loads of different ways. We need to think about um, the critical thinking and problem solving is what my brain just immediately comes back to. Is this about developing how children think? Is it too much in teaching that it's done unto you rather than you doing it and discovering it and finding a way of thinking for yourself? We need to promote thinking. I don't think we give children enough time to think. I think <laughs> there's a lot of thinks in that sentence. We we try and rush through and ensure that children have had coverage, but is there the depth of thinking there that we want? Critical thinking, allowing children time to understand and develop opinions. And actually this is probably in some ways more suited to secondary school children, although you know their curriculum is easily as jam-packed as it is in primary, but that time, the time that children need to think is absolutely key. And that will then in itself develop this culture of being an activist and making a difference. Um, I touched on it briefly earlier, things like advocacy. How do children know how to advocate for something they believe in? How do they know how to contact whoever's important or to be in the press to know that how, how change is actually made on a community scale, on a school scale, things like school councils, but then on a larger scale, on a country scale about petitions, do they know how change is actually made? And do they feel that they have a voice? You know, I think certainly this would be such an empowering thing since, since COVID-19. We see children with large, larger than usual levels of mental health problems about fear and anxiety. We can hand some of that strength back to them teaching them how to make a difference, to empower people again. And then this is a subject close to your own heart. I think children and everybody, in fact, needs to have a level of media literacy and to understand what's true and what's not true and discerning fact from fiction, especially on the internet. My word, we are bombarded on a daily basis with things that are quite simply not true. And this is what I find I come up against when I speak to adults about the environment, about changes we can make, small changes that would have big impacts. Very many people go, well, it, how do you even know what you're talking about is true? How do we know that? And it comes back to young children love the question, why? And they ask, well, why does this happen? Why does that happen? And my son, who is in year one now, he can tell you how a combustion engine works. He can tell you all of these things because he asks those why questions. Can be slightly awkward at times, <laughs> but it's fascinating because he wants to dive into the depths to a level that he's comfortable with. But why do we find that children stop asking why? Have we ever answered that question? There's a quote by Picasso. I'm sure I'll get this completely wrong, but it's something like everybody is born an artist. Um, the trick is to remain an artist as you grow up. It's along those lines. Yeah. And maybe it's that same thing. Maybe that inquisitiveness is, or not knowing becomes an issue as they get older. Suddenly when you get more self-conscious, putting your hand up and saying, I don't, could you explain to me why that happens? Maybe that's where some of the fear comes in. Maybe it comes in with when they start to develop that self-awareness that other people are thinking, well, crumbs, you don't know that. But I do you not know so regularly. I was always that I'm still am now the person that stops a meeting to ask a question. 
and I, I quite like to, unless I fully understand something, I feel really frustrated by it. So I'm always, always a question asker and really regularly other people go, I'm so glad you asked that question. So we need to develop, is that about culture? Is that about the values that you value mm. in your classroom as a teacher? Yeah. And then I think also you need to get the, that curriculum, right? Get that foundation of skills and knowledge so they can build on that inquisitiveness. They can actually discuss that why they have it in context as well. And I think we have so carefully constructed what our curriculum should look like in primary, especially over the last few years. But I think this fits in really nicely as a theme almost as something that can weave within everything. And I wrote down earlier, you talked about, um, I wrote down the word oracy. I can't remember what exactly you said that triggered that. Was I talking too much? No, no, it wasn't about <laughs> you, don't worry. It was about, it's, it's all about children being able to articulate themselves. And if you go and talk to, I think it was Hugh Jackman, I read a, something from him not long ago. Um, and I think it's his brother who is a barrister. And he is a, obviously, he's Hugh Jackman, don't need to actually describe what he does. And he went back to what's the one thing that made him and his brother who they are. It's a conversation around the dinner table. I don't think we talk enough. I don't think the children have the language enough to debate, to discuss, and to ask why. And if you go back to their foundations, I keep always going, why, why that is. Are we behind to what the media tells us? Are we behind to what school just tell us and lecture to us? And I think that's where the discussion, the oracy, the debating and the understanding are really key points because there is an aspect, and I talk from this of observing my son, that's all it is, that I think there is a mental health element to that as well. Because if you're just told all these things or you're knocked down all the time and your questions aren't listened to, I think that's a really important bit. So I think we do need to advocate for this, but also children need to understand why and they need to advocate it and empower them to advocate it as, as well. I used to love a debate in my classroom. I think it takes quite a brave teacher to instigate a debate because you're throwing open an element of chaos. Mm. Um and opinion, but it's very hard to debate without opinion on things as well. And do you know what? You're absolutely right. There's a lot of children that are going to come into your classroom who haven't had the opportunity to develop an opinion or who only hold the opinions that their parents hold. So instead of it being active conversations around the dinner table or on long car journeys, um, it's just then listening and then rehashing opinions of other people. Um, but it takes confidence and control to have things like a debate in the classroom, but actually that's a really key skill, isn't it? To understand how to talk about things, how to express your opinion without causing offense and how to, what a great thing to learn that you can disagree with people. It doesn't mean I don't like you. It just means that our opinions differ. Um, and it's also getting everyone's voice heard. And I think that's the part that in a class of 30 is difficult. If you start a debate then actually who's going to be talking? Well, actually is going to be the most confident who are going to be shown. What about the least confident? And I always talk about, and it's often a tangent, technology 
allows learning to be visible for all users or all people. And whenever I do voice recordings, it's for children to rehearse their thoughts. So therefore we can actually go back and then we will have that debate or we will have that discussion because children don't have to think of something on the spot. Like for example, this podcast conversation start, we're not just thinking on the spot. This is years of thought and then planning it, planning it out as well. If we're doing that as adults, we can't expect children to pick something up and just talk about it straight away. This is back to that element of, are we giving children enough time to think, isn't it? And that opportunity to think. It's really interesting that you, um, from that debate back to sort of the the computer literacy kind of (laughs) angle, whereas I was just thinking in my head, my direct go back to is then a theatre angle. Because theatre is obviously where I'm trained and where my my biggest comfort zone was for so long. So I would set up debates in my classroom. All I had, it was really simple. I had a a small piece of foam with a hole drilled in the bottom that I would whip out of my drawer and pop on the end of a pencil. And then immediately (laughs) I had a microphone and the children could only speak into the microphone, which meant that I, as the teacher, could then control who was asking questions. We'd do hot seating. They'd interview different characters. (laughs) I remember one time we were doing a whole piece of work about Neil Armstrong and bless them, my class, they were year five. I left the room and came back in with only a headscarf on that was different. I wasn't only wearing a headscarf, but I'd only, the only thing I'd changed was a headscarf. Um, I came into the room and then I was Neil Armstrong's wife and they had to interview me as Neil Armstrong's wife. Um, well, I did a terrible Texas accent. I'm not even sure if she was from Texas, to be honest. And um, But that kind of integrating for me, theatre and that element of play into the classroom was really important. Bless them. I left the room, removed the headscarf, came back in as myself and said, so how was it? How was the interview? How did it go? And they were like, you won't believe the woman who just came in. And they played along. They never, ever once sort of let me down. But it was, there's an element of control within that. So by having the microphone, it means that I could move around the room and specifically go to children to hear the voice of those ones that weren't always the most confident, that weren't always the first with their hands up. Um, I think when we just pulling it back to sustainability a little bit, going into debates and, and that kind of teaching is quite difficult without teachers that are really confident in this subject area. And it's massive. So it's huge. Ben, thinking about getting teachers confident, and also what resources we can pull on, how can then we be collaborative? How can we work with companies? How can we take things from government or what can we do to actually support that? Because it's not just curriculum, as you alluded to earlier, it's operational. Have you got roofs that don't leak? Have you got lighting in your school that may be LED? Have you got boilers that are going electric? Have you got all of these different bits and pieces in? Because when you talk about sustainability, and we alluded to this earlier, it's not one solution is not going to fix it. There's going to be lots of different solutions. We're not going to take off the amount of petrol cars we have in this country and in this world and change them to electric overnight. That's not going to be a viable solution. But there are lots of solutions, hydrogen or hydrogen cells and lots of other things down the line. So how can collaboration efforts with companies or outside agencies and other things make staff confident about this, but also could advocate it for children as well? Well, let's t- if we talk about collaboration, the first thing we have to do is we have to get families on board with what we're doing at school. You have at your disposal a huge amount of 
adults uh, from a variety of industries. And I'd say that in, in all schools, no matter what area you're in, there is going to be a diversity amongst those parents and they bring interest. They bring, um, they bring a game to the table, don't they? That some of them no doubt may be involved in a sustainable industry. And another good reason for teaching children about sustainability is this is the way the future is going. This is going to help with them in the job sector in the long term. But when we think about parents, that is a huge source to draw on um, in order to promote it within your schools. We talked earlier about the bike bus, about I know I had a really active um, parent teacher association at school who was 100 percent on board with that recycling uniform, recycling Christmas jumpers, thinking about um, and they supported and pushed that forward within within my school. I was really, really fortunate with a group of adults I had there. But also that was about the passion that I took to them and said, this is really important to me and I, I want it to be important to your children. So please help me with how you approach all the different areas of school life. Um, I think there is a. Uh, there is an alley you can go down with things like corporate partnerships. I don't think it's as simple as just saying that they're not all companies have the ability or the money but there is a corporate responsibility there's a social responsibility by large companies um, to support educational infrastructures so it's that's always a little route that is worth looking down and just thinking specifically about whatever project you wanted to do in school then thinking about how that could be supported either locally or on a larger scale i know that for one of the other schools in our academy trust, we had a hundred trees donated so they could start to build their own woodland. These opportunities are, are out there. You just need to find them. Um, there are environmental educational programs which have online, there's loads of resources with, um, there's materials, there's, you know, there's packs, there's lesson plans, there's all sorts of things out there in order to promote different areas of, of sustainability. You can also think about the trips you take the children on, the experiences they have in school, guest speakers that you have in, um, recycling plants, maybe take the children to a sustainable farm, take them to places that develop energy. We need to think about um, renewable energy and renewable en energy sources. How do they work? There is, there's opportunities for trips and experiences for the children there to get a really hands-on memorable experience of those areas that are really important. And, um, I guess there's elements of donations, whether it be books or resources, whether it's garden supplies, if you're setting up a gardening club or an outdoor area, and even things maybe in terms of lighting or of how that operational side of it can run. I guess we need to be open minded. It's a case of not always doing what we've always done. You know, there's opportunity out there. And I don't I don't claim by any way to say that these are easy avenues, any of these to squeeze anything out of anybody at the moment with the, the cost of living and every all businesses are trying hard just to stay above water. And it's the same in schools, isn't it? And these take time and thought. But maybe if you focus the learning or your projects or your purpose of learning around an area and then just speak to people, go out to parents, communication, communication with all members of your, of your school team, of your, you know, everybody who knows what, you know, one of the cleaners husbands does, or your mm. caretaker's wife might work with sustainable art, or you just don't know. So you need to go out and talk to everybody. Stop limiting those ideas and the imagination to the few people that are planning the lessons and open it right back up to everybody in your community. And I think that's something that 
schools may have been guilty of, especially in the last few years. We've been inward facing. We've been, since COVID, and rightly so, we've been very conscious of not allowing people in or allowing lots of people in. And then therefore, we also feel an air of judgment with that as well. And I think actually that's not the right thing. Schools are part of the community. And the moment you ask what jobs do parents do, even if you look at ambassadors um, and talk to companies, there's a whole host of things out there you can tap into and look at as well. Well, even if you think about parents who um, might be nurses or doctors or dental nurses, you know, these sustainable development goals think about good health and well-being. Although I did, here's a top tip for everybody. I sent out a questionnaire to parents about 18 months ago and said, you know, if you work in any area that might be of interest within our curriculum, within sustainability, if you are any of the following jobs, could you just um, drop drop a note in this box as to what job you may do and if you'd be interested in coming into school or whether we could work with you in your business. But what I didn't think was it was an anonymous questionnaire. So I then knew that there were all these resources there to be tapped into. I just didn't have a clue which parents it was. So <laughs> my top tip is don't make it an anonymous questionnaire when you're trying to find that information out. But actually people want to share that. Mm. That's like old school 1980s. You you know, parents come in and talk about their jobs. What a fantastic way. What a fantastic way to learn about real people stood in front of you talking about what they do. So before I ask you to sum up um, our conversation and what we want to go forward, I kind of want to go over the hurdles because schools are tight. They have tight budgets. We have a packed curriculum. Um, we have various challenges, whether we're in the Ofsted window um, and whether other things are moving as well. So what are some of the common challenges schools may come up with in integrating sustainability into the curriculum? And how may some of those we overcome as well? Because I know we've given lots of practical tips already, but let's have a look at that, that those potential hurdles in some ways already. So I, I was thinking about this before before we met today. I think initially our probably our first and biggest problem is a lack of resources. And by resources, I mean money, materials, time within the curriculum. There are constraints and we are trying to cover so much. My advice to that is um, think about how progressive your curriculum is. Think about how it builds up and make it clear what you're trying to achieve. Do less really, really well develop children's understanding for why and how you do things rather than skimming over things and thinking, well, we're going to learn about the Tudors, which is going to learn everything about the Tudors in the next 10 weeks. That's not possible. So teach children how to learn about history, empower children to be excited as historians. Um, the next one I think probably is around teacher knowledge and around CPD. And this, I mean, I know enough adults who have eco-fear. I do to a certain extent, probably, which is why I'm so passionate about it. I have absolute hope that we can make a difference, but without knowing how to handle the more difficult questions, without knowing how to make a change, I think that that is a potential hurdle that we're up against. Um, there is also resistance to change. You know, I've always, um, this, I, this is not me speaking, this is me potentially being a teacher, but I've always taught this in this way and this is how I want to teach it. We need to think differently. The world is changing. We are at 
a crucial point. They talk about seven years before we're really beyond the point of being able to come back easily from where we are in terms of global warming. So it's important that we are all thinking openly about making changes. And the resistance to change could come from parents, it could come from your school administrators, it could come from teachers. I think core subjects naturally take a precedence within schools still, which is unfortunate. Um, I think it's important to overcome the hurdle of making this age appropriate. I spent a long time when I first started thinking about how to integrate sustainability into the primary curriculum, starting right from early years, from sort of two, three-year-olds. How do we make this age appropriate? The sustainable development goals are not age appropriate. They're, the overviews are understanding good health and well-being, understand how to look after life in water, absolutely age appropriate. But when they're broken down into their targets, they're far more complex. So we need to develop that culture of empathy, of understanding, of thinking about how the children approach those in an age appropriate way. Um, and I think it's perceived to be really complex and and actually it's not, I feel like I've said the same thing for to you for the last hour nonstop, which is think about how to make a difference. Think about how you integrate that into what we do. Um, and then I guess, how do you evaluate that? If you're putting a large emphasis of your school time, of your children's time into something, is it easy to assess it and to evaluate it and to see the impact of it? So and when you think about, for me, it's the three strands. It's about what we implicitly teach the children within lessons. It's about what we teach them and tell them and talk about what is that culture within the school. So thinking about school food, about the environment around school, about assemblies, about book clubs, about school council. And then it's about um, what we do as a school. I think, and now again, I might get this wrong, but I think I read somewhere that if you took all the land coverage of the schools in the United Kingdom and brought them together, it would be an area about the same size as Birmingham. Now that is a huge expanse of space that can make a difference if they are being run sustainably, if we're thinking about where our energy comes from and we're making a marked difference, a city the size of Birmingham, if everybody did that simultaneously, that is huge. But we need to approach this with caution and make it age appropriate. Just Finance Foundation proudly sponsors Teachers Talk Radio for Talk Money Week. Join us from Saturday the 4th of November for a week of incredible guests and thought-provoking discussions on how teachers can talk about money in the classroom. Tune in, be inspired and empower the future generation. Teachers Talk Radio, sponsored by Just Finance Foundation, helping children manage money wisely. Visit our website for the schedule and details, justfinancefoundation.org.uk. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. 
visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. So thank you, Emily. It's been a fascinating conversation um, and we've gone over a lot there. We talked really high level about what sustainability can look like, why we need to do it, and some of the challenges with it. But one of the things, and it's always a difficult question, is to summarize this up for our listeners. So my question is this, what does developing sustainability in schools look like? And what does it not look like? Okay, good question. This is providing the answers. It's really easy to pose a lot of questions. What does sustainability in schools look like? It looks like a creative approach to what you're teaching. It looks like developing creativity in children's minds, discerning their problem-solving skills, challenging and changing the way that we think and that we teach. It's about learning from the past and implementing change for the future and it's about finding what excites children what sparks their passion and give them a purpose behind their learning root everything you teach children in an absolute purpose and then it makes sense and what is it not it's not about creating fear it's about creating hope it's not an add-on it's integrated within everything you do and it's about being empowered and empowering young people to know what the challenges are and to make a change in the future. Wow, powerful words there, Emily. Thank you. time on Teachers Talk Radio.